to the Books Talk podcast from Lincoln City Libraries. This program was recorded at the Bethany Branch Library on May 10th, 2019. Katie from the Bennett Martin Public Library discusses some of the books considered for this year's One Book, One Lincoln Community Reading Program. All right, so these are, um, the t- we actually have a top 11 this year. Our, our committee just couldn't eliminate that final book. So we have um, a top 11. And the first one is called The Oregon Trail, and this is by Rinker Buck. And so Rinker Buck grew up in this really unconventional family. He had a father who took uh, the family on vacations in covered wagons, and he wanted to um, see America slowly. So there's a picture of um, the original covered wagon that he went on with his um, his family and they had that little sign saying see America slowly um, and so decades later Rinker and his younger brother Nick decide the only proper way to experience the Oregon Trail is in a covered wagon and he purchases a mule team and he has a made-to-order covered uh, wagon made for him and that's just the beginning of his cross-country adventures so let me read a little bit for you He said, I slept in the wagon for the first time the night before we left, and I loved my new womb on red wheels. Nick and I had followed his pickup um, while our trucker, Doyle Prawl, hauled the mules and the wagons over the Missouri River and into Kansas. And after it started to rain, we pushed the wagons into the implement barn at Doyle's small farm. I left the barn doors open so that I would feel as if I was really camping. It was a beautiful Kansas night with the light rain pattering on the tin roof and far off I could hear dogs barking and the traffic on St. Joe Road. The next morning I woke at the dawn and immediately was gripped by one last dread. Inside my wagon womb I lay on a pillow with my hands clasped behind my head, brooding and staring up at the oak bows, unable to chase away my fears. Oh, Rinker, what have you done to yourself here? It's 2,000 miles till the end of the trail, and there are so many details to be on top of every day, and Nick will be looking to you for answers in a daily plan, the maps and finding supplies and finding waters and harnessing every day. Butte is probably a defective mule. Beck shies more than any equine you've ever driven. Why do you have to be such a crazy ass? You could be back in your house in New England writing a nice, safe book about clipper ships. <laughs> so um, it's it's part travelogue and also a part history lesson. Um, so he goes to all these places on the Oregon Trail, and he does visit places in Nebraska, so that's kind of some local interest there. Um, he starts in Kansas, and he kind of winds his way out, and at each location he kind of tells about um, the history of westward expansion um, and the hardships the pioneers had to endure, and then he have this relationship with his brother. It's kind of attested in this encounter, um, often in kind of a comical way. Um, so he also tells the stories of the modern-day people he meets along the way. Um, and it's kind of, if you like Bill Bryson at all, it kind of reminds me of like a Bill Bryson read-along. So, so the next one oh. is Circe by Madeline Miller. And in Greek mythology, Circe is a sorceress. She is the daughter of Helos, the sun god, and an ocean nymph, Perse. Um, but she lacks the power of a god, and she lacks the classical beauty of a nymph. So she's rejected by both of her parents. So Madeline Miller creates this first-person narrative of Circe's life. Um, and then uh, 
after angering Zeus, she's banished to an island where she discovers that um, witchcraft can give her powers over mortal men. Okay, I paced the rocks and had the earth uh, for hundreds of generations, and yet I was still a child to myself. Rage and grief, thwarted desire, lust, self-pity, these are the emotions the gods know well. But guilt, shame, remorse, ambivalence, and those are foreign countries to our kind, which must be learned stone by stone. I could not stop thinking of my sister's face, that blank shock when I told her that I would never be like her. What had she hoped for? That uh, we would send messages back and forth in the seabird's mouths? That we would share spells and fight the gods? That we might be in our own ways sisters at last? I tried to imagine it, our heads bent together over herbs, her laugh as she devised some cleverness. I wished then, oh, a dozen impossible things, that I had known sooner what she was, that uh, we had grown up somewhere other than the, those glittering halls, and I could have blunted her poisons and drawn from her abuses and taught her how to gather the last herbs. Ha, she said, I will take no lessons from fools like you. You are weak and blind, and it is worse because you choose it. You will be sorry in the end. It was always easier when she was hateful. I am not weak, and I will never be sorry to not be like you. Do you hear? There was no answer, of course, only the air eating my words. So if you like um, Greek mythology, I think this is a really fascinating read. Um, it's just, it's beautifully paced. It's got gorgeous language. Um, if you like audiobooks, the audiobook for this is fantastic. It's a British uh, actress, and she's just got a, a gorgeous voice. So she, um, the author endows Circe with all these human emotions. Um, you know, we get to feel her rejection from her parents and her bitter childhood rivalries um, and the loneliness of her banishment. Um, but it's also a tale of female empowerment, um, and she discovers that her powers have um, control over mortal men. Um, so it's very, it's a, a very suspenseful uh, retelling of of an of a interesting tale. Uh, I truly enjoyed this. I was disappointed that more people on the committee didn't think it was as wonderful as I did. Uh, it was kind of a split. That was a really interesting. We had a really interesting split. People absolutely loved it, or they did not. Okay, the next one is called American Wolf, and this is by Nate Blakesley. And in 1995, wolves were reintroduced to Yellowstone National Park. Their arrival was not without controversy. Ranchers and hunters in neighboring states did not welcome the arrival of the top predators, fearing that it would impact their lives and livelihoods. Environmentalists, however, were uh, thrilled Yellowstone tourism experienced a boom, and one wolf, uh, her name was 06, became a celebrity, and she was the embodiment of an alpha female. So, it was a beautiful morning in May 2010, and spring had finally reached the northern range. The south side and the mountains were greening up wonderfully through the snow, though the snow still clung to the higher reaches. A grizzly sow and her two yearling cubs had been working their way across the mountain since dawn, and now they were in a bowl, grazing on the long grass below the entrance to the den. One of the yearlings noticed the fresh dirt 
below the tunnel and began no nosing its way up the slope. Attracted by the den's earthy smell, fresh scat, and mixture, mixed with the lingering scent of O6's latest meal, it poked its nose inside. O6 launched herself from the depths of the tunnel and hit the cub straight on, sending it tumbling down the hillside and into the sage. A smaller cub she might have killed outright, but this was a yearling, roughly her own size. And even so, the stunned cub was in full <coughs> retreat, with 100 pounds of angry, snapping wolf pursuing it. The sow was on them in seconds, lunging and slashing at 06 with her three-inch claws as the club scrambled to safety. 06 retreated toward the den, her lips pulled back to show her teeth while the grizzly licked her startled cub and the second yearling hovered nearby. So um, this is really kind of a thrilling, fast-paced, uh, action-packed uh, story of survival in nature, um, with the wolves defending themselves from other packs, um, from predators in um, Yellowstone, and then also from the humans. So uh, Nate Blakesley offers kind of a primer on wolves and uh, lives in a wolf pack. He explains um, the impact on humans that the wolf introduction ca um, caused. And he kind of provides an even-handed account of, um, from multiple points of views, from both the environmentalist and the uh, park rangers, and then the hunters and ranchers, because it had a huge impact on, um, on Yellowstone. So really, to me, very fascinating um, if, you're, if you're into nature and nonfiction. Yeah. And uh, it, it, she's particularly interesting because um, she's, you know, most of the time it's the males that hunt, and she really is the, the leader of that pack. It, you know, he, he talks, he talks a, a lot. He talks to the ranchers, um, you know, because they're worried about, you know, they have cattle um, that, mm -hmm. that's being killed. Um, he talks about um, the laws that were enacted. It, you know, they were um, a part of protected when they initially were reintroduced, but then... Um, they, you know, they grew in size, and if they went out of the Yellowstone boundaries, they were allowed to be killed. Um, so that did happen to several wolves. Um, but it, Yellowstone had reached a, uh, a, a huge problem in that there weren't any predators, and the the deer population was really causing huge, mm -hmm, huge, huge environmental impacts to to what was going on there. Okay, the next one is also nonfiction. It's called The Faraway Brothers by Laura Markham. And in this book, Ernesto and Raul Flores are 16-year-old identical twins and unaccompanied minors who face a long and harrowing journey while migrating to the United States from El Salvador. They flee after Ernesto angers a gang leader and is marked for execution. After arriving in the United States, they're released to the custody of their older brother, um, who is also an undocumented alien. So once they're situated in Oakland, California, they begin to settle into life in America, balancing school and work to support themselves while fighting a legal battle to obtain green cards that would allow them to stay in the United States. So the night before their court date, Ernesto and Raul sat up worried. What would they say to the judge? What if he deported them right then and there? What if he accused them of being gangsters? They planned what they would wear, dark jeans and a light blue plaid shirt Wilbur had bought them, buttoned up all the way. And they checked and rechecked their papers in the manila envelope. 
their exit paperwork from the shelter, their birth certificates, their notice to appear. The judge might ask them about their grades and how they like school and why they left home and practice their answers. They would do their best uh, to look like reliable young men, diligent students, civic participants worthy of sanctioned entry into the United States of America. They were so focused on how they'd fare and what would happen, it never occurred to them to worry about how to find the courthouse. So, and there is a scene, and anybody who has ever been in San Francisco driving, there's a scene of them driving around trying to find this courthouse. Um, so Laura Markham, is, she kind of recalls her efforts. She was an educator in Oakland, the Oakland schools. So this is her uh, recollection of, of helping. Um, the names are changed in this case. Um, they're all pseudonyms, but helping these two students that, that arrive as undocumented um, immigrants. Is this nonfiction? This is nonfiction. Um, so she offers kind of an unflinching look at the causes of our current immigration crisis, starting with the origins of um, the Central American gangs in the California prison system and their deportation to the failed nations of El Salvador, the impacts of gangs on the average El Salvadoran citizen, and the, the necess necessity to flee in order to save their lives. Um, she tells the horrors of, and abuse of migrants that they face when they journey through Mexico and um, their trials once they make it here. And she also writes how immigrants such as the Flores brothers impact the educational systems in the communities where they reside. So um, I will say she does have a point of view that isn't going to be uh, online with a lot of people. I mean, she's somebody who deals with um, children um, and students. So. Um, you know, she definitely has a point of view, but I think um, the committee in general really felt that this was a, an important work because it really talked about what's happening and why. Um, and, you know, we're a refugee resettlement community. We have, I think, um, in the, our Lincoln Public Schools, there's over 150 languages of, of people that come here. So it was something that the committee thought was relatable to, to Lincoln. Okay, so our next one is called Setting Free the Kites. And this is by Alex George. And George sets his coming-of-age novel in the 1970s in, in a coastal Maine resort city. Robert Carter is struggling with acne, an awkward body, and an oversized bullying nemesis when a new kid, Nathan Tilly, suddenly rescues him from his tormentor. Um, they forge an unlikely friendship between a quiet introvert and a daring risk-taker. And they both struggle to overcome family tragedies as they navigate their paths to adulthood. Um, then, uh, a few weeks after Easter, the mailbox began to fill with responses to the college applications that Liam, and um, Liam is Robert Carter's brother. Um, Liam had set off um, the previous fall. My parents had forgotten to tell the universities that he was dead. The heavy, grandly embossed envelope sat in a pile on the kitchen counter. One morning, when I came downstairs for breakfast, my mother was sitting at the table with a cup of coffee in her hands, and she spread out the envelopes in front of her. I sat down. Pick a card, any card, she said. I pointed to a cream-colored envelope edged in gold. My mother pulled it out of the stack. I did not recognize the name of the school. The return address was somewhere in California. I couldn't imagine anything being further away. 
Look at them all, Robert, she sighed, and she held the envelope I'd chosen up to the light. I wonder what this one says. Is it a yes or a no? Would, what would Liam have studied, and who would he have met? You should open it, I said, and my mother shook her head. There's beauty in the unknown, Robert, beauty and hope. And she tapped the envelope in, with her fingertips. If I open this and discover that Liam was accepted or won a scholarship or something wonderful, well, and she was silent for a moment. Sometimes lives can be a little more bearable if you don't know all there is to know. I was not sure if I had room inside me for any more regret. Not right now. She smiled at me sadly. All these different futures, she said, and Liam isn't going to get to choose even one of them. So this is um, kind of a nostalgic, bittersweet um, story. It has like a measured kind of pace, and it's, um, it's uh, about a friendship and how friendship can hold up a fragile identity, uh, even when that identity is being battered by the unraveling of a family's structure. So from that one, this is a complete opposite. <laughs> this is called The Mars Room, and it's by Rachel Kushner. So uh, Romy Hall has lived uh, on the underbelly of society her entire life. Born into a mother of little means, she always scraped by. So as a young woman, she found herself dancing at the Mars Room, a sleazy strip club in a rundown section of town. It's in the Mars Room that a stalker becomes obsessed with her, and when he hunts her down, she defends herself. Her lack of access to a competent lawyer results in two life sentences at a woman's correctional institution. And in prison, she discovers a different reality, and she struggles to learn how to survive in her new circumstances. At the Mars Room, I did not have to show up on time or smile or obey any rules or think of most men as anything other than losers to be exploited but who believed that they were exploiting us. And so it was naturally quite hostile as an environment, even as it was coded in pretend submission of our own. The Mars Room was a place where you could do what you wanted. At least I had believed that. When I was dating Jackson's dad, I broke a bottle over his head and he punched me back in the face. And I showed up five hours later to work with a black eye and wearing sunglasses and no one said anything. I had arrived there on several occasions so drunk I could barely walk. Some of the girls, as part of their routine, spent the first several hours of their shifts nodding off in the dressing room with a makeup compact in one hand. There was no problem with that. Management did not care. There were girls who worked the audience in the standard uniform of lace bras and panties, but with ratty broken down tennis shoes instead of high heels. If you showered, you had a competitive edge at the Mars room. If your tattoos weren't misspelled, you were hot property. And if you weren't five or six months pregnant, you were the it girl in the club that night. Girls maced customers in the face and sent us all outside hacking and choking. One customer got mad at D'Artagnan, the night manager, and set the dressing room on fire. She was let go, it's true, but that was exceptional. So... <laughs> No, this is a, well, I don't know, there might be something in the, author, in the author's research, but um, it's, a, it's a gritty and kind of raw um, exploration of what happens to women 
who are trying to survive when they have limited financial means. Um, the novel does contain explicit language and graphically written sexual encounters. Um, so while in prison, um, Rami has uh, time to contemplate society's view that if she wanted a better life outside of the prison walls, she should have made better choices. Katie, so. how many books had to be read to get to these um, I think we had about 150 that were nominated, um, and I can't remember, I think maybe about 120 actually made it through the vetting. And um, so when we do that, the first time we're trying to get down to 50 books. So um, a lot of times it's, you know, I mean, sometimes some of them are really easy. We, we don't, like, we don't really do anything that's overtly political. Um, so this year we had, like, M Michelle Obama's book, Becoming, was... You know, and that we threw out. We threw out Ben Sass's book when it was nominated. I mean, things that are just definitely they had things to be pretty good to get to be the top eleven. Yeah, I mean, and I would say, I, like the Mars Room is not necessarily something that I cho would choose to to read on my own, but it's an ALA notable book. Mm -hmm. um, it's it's gotten awards, and I would say there's some universal truths in it. But I would also say that we have about 20 people, 18 to 20 people on the committee, and if we had 18 to 20 different people, we'd probably come up with three separate different books for our, our winners. So it's just a matter of what is nominated and who is willing to champion that book. I would also say we have, especially with our newer people who come, um, you know, they don't really have a good sense of who our audience is. You know, we say it's one book, one Lincoln. Oh, it's everybody in Lincoln. Well, that's not really who's who our readers are. So, um, you know, I would say the majority of our readers are probably upper class or middle class uh, women from 35 to 65, 70, 80, you know, 80. <laughs> um, you know, that's, that's who the majority of our, you know, so we don't want something that's only geared just towards them, but that's kind of something we kind of have to balance is are these stories going to appeal to the majority of our readers? And that's, that's kind of like where The Fisherman was a, a really, you know, well thought of, nominated title, but it didn't appeal to who our readers really were. What's the age group of the, of the readers that are selecting the book? Um, you know, we try for a balance. We do have a decent amount of younger people, I would say, right now. Um, last year we asked a lot of men to be on the committee because we felt it was too stacked towards women. So, I mean, we're always kind of trying to balance that out with who's interested in being on the committee because it is a lot of reading. It's a lot of reading. We're reading six to seven books every two weeks from beginning of um, February through the end of March. So the next one is called Educated, a memoir, and this is by Tara Westover. So Tara was born into uh, a family of survivalists who did not believe in formal education or modern medicine. So this is her memoir of a childhood spent doing hard and dangerous labor in her father's junkyard and scrapping business. It's the story of physical and emotional abuse at the hands of various family members. And it's also the story um, of how uh, a belief in female inferiority leads, allows that abuse to continue and how she transforms her life through the power of education. And there, there is a little bit of controversy. Her, her um, parents obviously do not um, agree with everything that she's written. And that's true with memoirs in general. Um, you know, the same people can attend the same event and come away with a different memory of it. Um, so, and that's just a part of memoirs. And if you read memoirs, you, you know that. <laughs> so, um, 
That night when I came home, Sean was gone, and Sean is one of her brothers. Mother was in the kitchen blending oils. She said nothing about that morning, and I knew I shouldn't mention it. I went up to bed, and I was still awake for hours later when I heard a pickup truck roar up the hill. And a few minutes later, my bedroom door creaked open, and I heard the click of a lamp, and I saw the light leaping over the walls, and I felt the weight drop onto my bed. I turned over and faced him. He had put a black uh, velvet box next to me, and when I didn't touch it, he opened the box and withdrew a string of, of milky pearls. He said that he could see the path I was going down, and it was not good. I was losing myself, becoming like other girls, frivolous and manipulative, using how I looked to get things. I thought about my body and all the ways it had changed. I hardly knew what I felt toward it. Sometimes I did want to be noticed and to be admired. And then afterwards, I'd think of Jeanette Varney, and I'd feel disgusted. You're special, Tara, Sean said. Was I? I wanted to believe I was. Tyler, and that's another one of his brothers, Tyler had said I was special be years before. He read me a passage of scripture from the Book of Mormon about a sober child quick to observe. This reminds me of you, Tyler had said. The passage described the great prophet uh, Mormon, a fact I'd found confusing. A woman could never be a prophet, yet here was Tyler telling me I reminded him of one of the greatest prophets of all. I still don't know what he meant by it, but what I understood at the time was that I could trust myself, that there was something in me, something like uh, what was in the prophets, and that it was not male or female, not old or young, but a kind of worth that was inherited and unshakable. Um, I... I think they're Mormon, but she's made a point of saying that this is not a book that's anti-Mormon. I mean, her, her parents are, are really, um, it's not about the Mormon religion. It's about her specific parents. And her, one of the things that she said was that she thought her father had, like, undiagnosed mental illness. Um, Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, it's a gripping story of survival. Um, she provides detailed accounts of these family members who have very mercurial temperaments, and um, they swing wildly between being a loving and then also being abusive. You know, as she becomes older, you know, the men in her life try to assert themselves more, um, and... Um, She's given this opportunity to go to college, um, and it's a chance for her to kind of escape her, her <coughs> demons, and she really makes the most of it. She's educated at BYU. She goes on and gets um, a doctorate from Oxford. Um, it's beautifully written. She's, she's a gorgeous writer, and it's really, um, you know, it really talks about what education means. And, and um, she was homeschooled in a way, but there was a, there wasn't, <laughs> there wasn't, you know, um, you know, her parents didn't believe in formal education, um, but it's really amazing because most of her siblings do go on to college and get college degrees, and it's pretty much by being self-taught, and she, um, yeah, you know, she, I mean, you know, it's about, like, these are her family members, and so she is connected to them, and it's, you know, and you see that with any, um, story of abuse, how it's so hard for people that are abused to break away, because that's, that is their connections. Okay, so the next one is called The Great Believers, and, 
Um, and this is by Rebecca uh, McKay. Um, it's the 1980s in Chicago, and Fiona finds a haven um, from her teenage angst with her older brother Nico and his friends in a section of the city nicknamed Boys Town for its gay male population. For Yale, one of Nico's friends, his professional life is succeeding just at the same time his personal life is taking a hit. One by one, Yale's friends, starting with Nico, succumb to a mysterious new disease, AIDS. Another storyline takes place years later as Fiona still grapples with the impact of losing her brother and so many friends at such an early age. So, and these, a lot of these characters' names, they're all um, a part of this friend set um, that Nico had. Asher said, Teddy, you were attacked. It's nothing compared to people dying, but it is something, and it is related, and it's, uh, not, and it's not like it isn't related. Teddy laughed and said, Remember Charlie yelling at Nico outside the paradise? It was before Nico was sick. Nico had said, I think we'll have to worry less about getting beat up, you know. People are afraid of blood. I mean, they might throw something, and there's no one, uh, but there's no one that's going to punch you in the mouth coming out of a bar right now. And Charlie had said, are you effing kidding me? Attacks are up threefold. You should try reading the paper before you draw uh, the four. Threefold, Nico said. Er, they all int uh, intimidated him for the rest of the night. Threefold. Now I shall consume threefold beers. Forsooth. <laughs> so um, it's, uh, you know, I think of anybody who came of age in the 1980s, and I, I graduated from high school in 84 and college in 88, um, it's, it's just really a, a searing look back at that time where um, no one knew anything about AIDS other than if you got it, you were going to die. This, so you've got um, dual timelines. You've got the timeline in 1985, and then you've got the timeline in um, 2015, so 30 years later looking back at what, you know, what happened. And, um, you know, it's a story of, char uh, of a lot of characters and their friendships, but it also kind of gives voice to the people that um, died so young and aren't here today, and it makes you think about what, what they would have contributed had they been, it, it looks at the politics that were kind of going on, the idea that, you know, this is just a gay men's disease, so we don't have to worry about it. It, it doesn't really talk about um, the, you know, having the cure, um, because at this point there was, there was none. Um, but you kind of, kind of go back to that point in time where um, so much fear was uh, following anybody who was, who was gay. They talk, there's, there's scenes in here in the, um, you know, where people wouldn't touch the patients. That, it really is a very um, compelling look at, at what life was like in the early 80s. Okay, so our next one is called There, There by Tommy Orange. And so there's 12 Native American characters that are traveling to the big Oakland powwow in the San Francisco Bay Area. Each one of them has come there for their own reasons. Um, younger characters like Dean Oxendine and Edwin Black and Orville Redfeather, um, they want to connect with people who share their heritage and learn more about cultural traditions that were not passed on to them by their parents since they were really considered urban Indians. Older characters like Opal, Viola, Victoria Bearshield, and Jackie Redfeather 
are coming to participate in the singing, dancing, and visiting as a way um, to make connections and overcome their troubled past. Um, but there's also characters that are coming for more sinister reasons. So their stories all converge in this po uh, powerful moment at the powwow. In the Oakland Coliseum parking lot for the big Oakland powwow, there was one thing that uh, makes many of our cars the same. Our bumper stickers and rear windows are covered with Indian stickers like, we're still here and my other vehicle is a war pony. And sure, you can trust the government, just ask an Indian. Or Custer had it coming. We are Indians and Native Americans, American Indians and Native American Indians, North American Indians, Natives, NDNs, and Indians. Status Indians and non-status Indians, First Nation Indians and Indians so Indian, we either think about the fact uh, of it every single day or we never think about it at all. We are urban Indians and indigenous Indians, res Indians and Indians from Mexico and Central and South America. We are Alaskan Native Indians and uh, Native Hawaiians and European expatriate Indians and Indians from eight uh, different tribes with quarter uh, blood quantum requirements. So we are not federally recognized Indians, kind of Indians. We are enrolled members of tribes and disenrolled members and ineligible members and tribal council members. And we are full-blooded and half-breed and quadroon and eighth and 16th and 32nd, undoable math, insignificant remainders. So it's, it's really um, uh, an interesting look at uh, Native American storytelling. Um, you've got all these different characters, and um, the way he weaves the story, they're, they're separate vignettes, and yet they all come together at the end, and a lot of them are interconnected, and you find those connections um, as you read the story. Um, so the, the title, There, There, refer, is a reference to Gertrude Stein, and she described the land um, that she uh, grew up in her childhood home um, when she had come back as an adult and it had changed so much, and she said, there's no there there. And so that's where it's coming from, and these characters in this novel um, are also kind of searching for a way back to an ancestral and cultural history that currently eludes them. You know, you get to see these connections um, as the story builds. Is that considered fiction? Yeah, this is fiction as well. Okay, now we have the library book by Susan Orland. So, on the morning of April 29, 1986, a fire was started at the Los Angeles Public Library's Central Library. The fire burned for more than seven hours. 400,000 books were burned while several thousand books were damaged. Um, Susan Orleans explores the history of um, the LA, um, public library and the architectural gem that was designed by Bertram Goodhue, and he's the same architect that has designed the, the state capitol building. Um, she looks at the roles libraries play in our society, and she presents a cast of characters related to the central library, including the early librarians, and the suspected arsonist. So every month, more than uh, 700 new books arrive at the library. And then they um, are offloaded, unboxed, stamped, stickered, linked to an electronic cataloging system, and snuggled in mylar cover 
barcoded and finally let loose on the shelves. It takes almost a week to process a new book. One afternoon when I was visiting the special, uh, the collection services department um, where the processing takes place, uh, books that had just arrived included 100 interiors around the world, Hoover's War on Gays, Exposing the FBI's Sex Deviates Program, and Don't Be a Jerk, and other uh, practical advice from Dugan's and Japanese Greatest Zen Master. There are also uh, a stack of Spanish and Russian and Armenian and Swedish books that were making their way into the International Language Department. Peggy uh, Murphy, who manages collection services, started her library career as a teenager in Mount Vernon, New York. And at the time, when the head librarian summoned the clerk using a kind of metal clicker, now most often used to train dogs. <laughs> Each clerk was summoned by his unique click pattern. Murphy's was two short clicks. The book that the head librarian in Mount Vernon deemed dangerous, um, that is sexual, were shelved in a locked metal cage in the basement of the library. Um, uh, Balzac and Masters and Johnsons were there behind bars, and somehow Mercy Murphy figured out where the keys to the cage was stored. And during her break, she sneaked in and read. And by the time she graduated from high school, she had managed to read every single one of the cage books. It broadened my worldview, she, like, she likes to say. So um, and that's nonfiction. This is nonfiction. Um, it is a combination of true crime and library history, and it's an absolute delight for any library lover. Um, it, uh, you know, you'll learn a lot about um, how libraries function, and there's also all kinds of interesting tidbits of information. Um, the central library was almost demolished um, before the fire caused uh, people to stop and say, no, this is an architectural gem and we want it restored. Um, you'll learn how the library started as a reading room in the 1870s um, and how an early long-serving library director was forced out simply because she was a woman. Um, she describes um, the special collections that the Los Angeles Library has. They have a huge map collection. I think it's the fifth largest in the United States or in the world. Um, they also have a lot of photographs. Um, and you'll learn the, the, the stories of the people who work in the library um, as well as the customers they serve. Um, I, as a library librarian, I just love this book. <laughs> And it was restored. It was. It was the. They restored the uh, original building, and then they built um, wings onto it. There's just a lot about libraries and library history, and um, you know, she even talks about how she kind of stopped going to libraries, and she only kind of went back because one of her sons had a um, some sort of project where he had to come back to the library, and then she was. Like wow, why did I stop coming? <laughs> but I know for like I yeah, like I, I came of age in um, the eighties and I distinctly remember when I was in high school, so my high school was seventh grade, I went into our public library and there was a beautiful children's section and I walked all the way back through it and I kind of thought, Well, I really don't belong in this Thank section you. anymore and then I walked into the adult collection and I thought, Okay, I really don't belong here either, and I kind of stopped going to libraries for kind of a while, and there really wasn't a young adult section at that point. And, mm -hmm. and that was kind of, I think, as libraries, we've realized that, and we've tried to really beef up our young adults so that you're not losing somebody along the way. You're not having somebody who has these great memories of coming to the libraries as children and being a part of story times and crafts and activities, but then kind of 
not having anything for them anymore and then trying to hope that you can reconnect them back as, as adults. Okay, so our number 11. Um, and like I said, these aren't in any order at all. These were just the order that my holds came in and ended up on my desk. Um, the last one here is called Where the Crawdads Sing by Della Owens. So Kaya is known to the locals of a small North Carolina town simply as the Marsh Girl. She practically raised herself after being abandoned by her mother, and her abusive alcoholic father drove out the rest of her older siblings. As a young woman, she captures the attention of two men who initially befriend her. However, both betray her in different ways. Um, uh, when they realize that her character is too far outside the bounds of what the local society will accept. When one of the men is found dead, Kaya becomes the focus of a murder investigation. Nineteen years old, legs longer and eyes larger, and seemingly blacker, Kaya sat at Point Beach. Watching the sand crabs bury themselves uh, backward in the swash, suddenly, from the south, she heard voices and jumped to her feet. The group of kids, now young adults, she'd watched occasionally through the years, ambled toward her, tossing a football and running and kicking the surf. Anxious they would see her, she looped into the trees, sand tearing from her heels, and hid behind the broad trunk of an oak tree, knowing how odd this made her. Not much had changed, she thought, them laughing and me holding up like a sand crab, a wild thing ashamed of her own freakish ways. Tall, skinny, blonde, ponytail, freckle face, always wears pearls and round chubby cheeks, romped the beach, tangled in laughs and hugs, on her rare trips to the village, she heard their slurs. Yeah, the marsh girl gets her clothes from colored people and has to trade muscles for grits. Yet, after all these years, they were still a group of friends, and that was something. Silly looking on the outside, yes, but as Mabel had said several times, they were a sure troop. You need some girlfriends, hon, because they're forever, and without a vow... A uh, clutch of women, the most tender, most toughest place on earth. So, so Owen spins this tale um, of this lonely girl trying to find her place in the world. She vividly describes the coastal um, swamp and the murky settings that allow Kaya to slip in and out of prying eyes. It's part thriller, part suspense, and the novel turns into um, a murder mystery whodunit with a surprising twist at the end, and it's kind of a journey through magical realism in a lot of ways. It's so. a lot about nature. Mm-hmm, yeah. So this is, I think, her first novel, but it, yeah, she, she really talks about, you really have a sense of the setting. You really understand what a coastal marsh looks like and smells like and feels like. Um, interesting cast of characters, and it kind of deals with the, you know, the idea of, of being alone and kind of against the world and kind of looking in at others and, and kind of wishing and maybe hoping for something else, but then finally finding your voice and finding who you are and being able to stand on your own. Wow. We only vote for the top three. Like, we, when we vote, we get it down to hopefully going into the last two weeks, we only have ten to read. Um, and then we really only vote for the th top three. But this year, the before our final meeting, 
we just couldn't eliminate that final book. It was really, it was really hard. You know, I'm not a fan. I'm not a fan of it, but I don't control the, the committee. Um, and I think we had a lot of people on the on the committee this year that just couldn't couldn't give up books. They like you. You kind of have to get to the point that like you know this might be my favorite book, but it's not the right book for this program. And this year, it. And some years we have committee members that, you know, like our votes are pretty easy and we kind of get to those numbers right away. And this year, every single time we had to get to a certain number, the last two or three votes were really challenging. <laughs> so those, those, are our, those are our choices. I hope people come and join us at the Mill on Memorial Day. It's a lot of fun. The reveal is at 10.30, but most people kind of show up a little bit before then. We will have um, copies of the books available for checkout. We limit people to one book. Um, per checkout um, at the time, but it's it's usually a lot of fun. Even if it's raining, you know, the mill has that, um, and down on the Haymarket it has that great roof. So, you know, we've never had a problem with it being rained out. Not, and if you read great books, we really want you to nominate them. Because so you can do that starting now. Yeah, you can do it right now. You can nominate your round. So and we, you know, we have to start with the nominations. If it's not nominated, we can't look at it. I know I had somebody who said, well, we don't have a, you know, there's no science fiction or whatever. And I said, well, you know, that's what's Nobody nominated. You know? Yeah. Thank, well, thank you. you. Thank you. Good job. Have you watched that?